Hello and welcome, my friends, to the latest Selby is Godcast, courtesy of The Athletic Cleveland. I am TJ Zuki. He is Zach Meisel. We both cover the Indians. And Zach, another week of spring training has gone by, and we're actually now into the thick of some games, and things are actually happening. We're starting to get some clarity on a few things. So I think more so than the past few weeks, this is actually starting to feel real. Well, it feels real for a minute, and then you realize we're entering that part of spring training where people go insane. Um, I actually asked Mike Chernoff this. <laughs> I probably should have done it off the record because on the record he didn't give a very interesting answer. But I asked him, like, how do you not go clinically insane out here for six or seven weeks every year? Um, but you're getting to that point where veterans are like, all right, let's go. Let's get to the season. Young players are like, well, this sucks. All the veterans are playing every day and getting four at-bats a game now. So there's less playing time for me. And so you're getting to that point where it's still fun, it's exciting, it's new, it's fresh. But pretty soon it's going to change. And everyone's going to be feeling like me, who is going so crazy that he ate Panda Express three straight days (laughs) and wanted to just take off my shirt and run around Goodyear because I was so sick of the same routine every day. You think you're crazy. It's just everyone else that's insane that is not spending three straight days at Panda Express. Um, and you do you act like you wouldn't do that anyways if you were home. <laughs> but I think there's a reason why you know we we break this up the way that we do with you spending some time out there early, and then I'm going to be jetting out to Goodyear in a couple of days. And and I think it's important to get that break. I know Jordan Bastion at MLB.com got a week off. We all get a, get that mental break. The players are all, they've been out there since like the first week of February. And, and these dates that, that they, the teams pass out, uh, okay, pitchers and catchers are going to be reporting on this day. And we'll have first full squad workout on this day. Nobody pays attention to that crap. They're out there from the jump. So I can't even imagine being out there for essentially what becomes two straight months being away from friends and family and you're stuck with people that you better hope you like for the next eight months or else you don't really have any way of getting away from them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think some would argue, well, isn't that what the the whole season is? It's 162 games of that, but it's, you know, it's different when you play at home and you have your own residence and you have your own bed and you have places to go, people to see familiarity. And when you're traveling to different cities, it, it helps too. This is, you are stuck in the capital city of chain restaurants <laughs> and you're stuck in a little hotel room. It's like, like what's the, the scene in family guy where Peter is just walking back and forth in that little space. And then they zoom out and it's, what are they, are they like playing pong or something? Yeah. <laughs> gotta get like out of here. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And I'm sure it's really tough. And for veterans, it's why like they don't, it seems like a lot of veterans kind of like roll their eyes or shrug about spring training just because it is, it can be miserable. And and you, you get to a point where it's like, I've had enough of this. Just get me to the regular season for, for more reasons than just being stuck in Goodyear, Arizona too. I mean, obviously it's, it's just, you, you, you feel good. You're ready to go. And, and you want to take that positive energy into what's going to be a long grind. Well, one person that has done a pretty good job of building some positive energy is Jason Kipnis, who is all he has done is hit home runs. Has he done anything else in any of his at-bats in, in Cactus League play? I don't think so. He's got up, up to five home runs now in 
six games played, something like that. It, it's been pretty ridiculous so far for Kim. Yeah, the last I checked, he was something like eight for 12 or 13 with five home runs. I know none of this counts, but and, and people are like, oh, save it for April. And it's like, that doesn't work that way. And also, wouldn't you like if he was 0 for 13 with eight strikeouts right now, people would be panicking. So let's give him a little credit for, for hitting the ball well and not. I mean, remember, he had a bulky back that he, he sat out the first two games in Cactus League play and has come back and, and looks incredible at the plate. And so you just you, you want to be feeling good about yourself. And I think for him, especially talking to him the other day, um, it was he's older. He's going to be 31 the first week of the season. He knows times have changed. He's not the, the main part of the core anymore. He's one of the aging veterans who's on the outside looking in. And the Indians, he knows, the Indians tried to find ways to move him and get rid of his salary and and get maybe more athletic defensively. And so he has to prove that he can, A, stay healthy, B, produce, C, stick at second base. So it, it's, it's an important season to him, and I think that's why maybe a fast start for him is is more meaningful than a fast start for Francisco Lindor or for Corey Kluber. Doesn't it seem like he's just at his best whenever he's got something to prove, when he's got some sort of chip on his shoulder and, and some something he can essentially pin up in his locker that talks about why he is washed up or why he's not capable of, of being a productive player, anything like that. It seems like it sticks with him maybe more than anybody, but it always seems to to motivate him in, in a way that usually ends up benefiting the Indians. And it's not like he, he doesn't care in times where maybe he's not getting that. We know we've talked about the injuries a number of different times. He's got to be healthy first and foremost, but I, I, I seem to seem to think every time that there's any any sort of something calling it a question with him, he always responds pretty well. Well, it helps or maybe doesn't help sometimes that he reads everything. He reads articles, headlines. He reads his Twitter mentions, his Instagram comments. He, it used to be worse. He used to read that stuff religiously and let it affect him. Now he's a little older. He can roll his eyes at it. But um, I think, that, you know, the one reason why he's always been one of the, the guys I flock to when I, I need a candid answer is, is he's, he's just honest. He's, he doesn't sugarcoat things. And so even the other day, talking about all that, talking about how he is at his best when he's got that chip on his shoulder and, and, and he – he knows that it was it was a rough, humbling offseason and that he's got a lot to prove this year and he's got a lot of doubters. So I, I had him going last week and like when when you know you, you get into a groove with a player and, and you do this with Nick Goody like every other day during the season, but um they, they just like they, they hit their stride and, and they're you found a topic that they really want to go in depth on. I guess you could say this for Trevor Bauer with the piece that ran earlier this week. But you want to keep it going and you want to like dig at the root of how they're feeling, how they, you know, what their perspective is on the stuff we've been writing about. How does Jason Kipnis feel that he didn't know he was going to be playing second base until mid-January? How did he feel to read his name in trade rumors? How does he feel to know that the majority of people out there think he's over the hill? He's not the best option for the Indians. He's not worth the $13 million he's going to make this year. And so... As he's answering these questions, I'm trying to formulate more questions in my mind to keep this conversation going. And like three times during the interview, 
he finished an answer and I didn't have the question ready because I was still formulating it and I wanted to keep it going even though it might have been a good place to stop. And he finally just looks at me and goes, I never know if I'm answering your questions right. Because <laughs> I'm just like standing there <laughs> staring into oblivion like, oh, what do I ask next? I got to keep this going. He's, he's giving such good answers. And so it was, it was funny, but it was just kind of the perfect picture of A, everything you said is right. He's, he's got a lot to prove and he knows it. And I think he embraces that. But B, like, he, he's, it's refreshing to hear that sort of candor for a player, especially someone who has really experienced everything this game has to offer and is not in, the prime, in his prime anymore and is not necessarily at his best and, and, and does, doesn't really know what his future holds. It was, it was fascinating. And the numbers might, might, might not mean anything, Zach. None of these are going to carry over. And it's not an indication he's going to be an all-star just based on the fact that he's hitting home runs in spring. I mean, it's Cactus League. A lot of guys can do that. There's, it's, you get the ball up in the air out there, and it's got a chance to become a rocket. Um, but I, I think a more important takeaway is what we've said about a thousand times, and we've written about a thousand times, is that if Jason Kipnis is healthy, you can probably count on him being a really productive player and a really valuable player. And if there's anything, a lot of extra base hits and driving the ball hard, and making good contact and having good discipline, all those things that we can see in spring kind of indicates it's that he's feeling good and he's probably healthier than he's been at least at any point last year. And you mentioned the back and that was a problem early and he's certainly having to learn how to listen to his body much differently than he was earlier in his career. But if there's anything I can take away, it's that he's probably in a pretty good place, all things considered. And if that's the case, I have a lot more faith in him having that bounce back four and a half win season than I would have in any other circumstance. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing people worry about with Michael Brantley is like, I don't think the, I think the Indians expect him to pro- like, if I had to guess, I'd probably say Brantley is on the disabled list come opening day, but is back at some point in April, maybe even the earlier part. But the worry is that when you play from behind like that, Mm-hmm. It, you, you're, you're playing from behind for a while. It's not just you come back on April 10th and you're good to go. Like Kipnis last year was, was behind from the get-go. And so for him, you know, he, he has his back is barking earlier in spring and he misses the first two games and immediately it's like, here we go. And with him, though, given how he's performed, we, I don't think we have to worry about that. We're seemingly getting more clarity day by day on the, the starting rotation. We know... Clevenger is going to be in the rotation, and, and that's not really a surprise. He really earned that the way that he pitched last year. I know he got put in the bullpen late, but I, I think not only did he prove it, but he's also seemingly been someone that responds better to being in a starting atmosphere as opposed to coming out of the bullpen. Maybe similar to Josh Tomlin. You don't feel like his skills translate well to a bullpen role, probably best suited for for starting. And so that's the case with, with Clevenger and it's not a surprise, but it does at least knock one of those jobs that were, were up for grabs off the, off the list. And now we're, we're trying to figure out what's happening with, with the rest of the guys that are fighting for those spots. And now it, it sounds like Danny Salazar will open up the season on the disabled list. Again, not a surprise, but as, as the days go by, we're, we're kind of getting a clear picture on, and how they're going to piece this together. Clevenger deserved it, and I'm, I'm interested to see him take the next step in his evolution. You know, he's 
he said all winter he wants to be a 200-inning guy, and, and that's quite a statement to make because there are not a ton of those guys around the league, even though the Indians have two of them in, in Kluber and Carrasco. And Bauer, if he could, would probably be the league's only 300-inning guy. <laughs> um, but it, it also, if he does take that next step, it, it eases the burden on your bullpen, which is maybe the shakiest part of the roster or, or the, the part of the roster that's the biggest question mark, right? So... So, so that's, you know, I, I think Clevenger can have a nice season. I know Carl Willis is really eager to see what he can do over the course of 162 games. And, and it's, it seemed like the obvious choice, as you said. So the question now becomes Tomlin versus Merritt and what Merritt, what you do with him, assuming Tomlin is that fifth guy. And then what to do with Salazar when he comes back? Because... I don't think you would he's not he's not established enough or consistent enough or healthy enough ever to be a guy who just comes back from the disabled list and bounces someone. If someone's pitching terribly, sure, maybe, depending on when when Salazar comes back. But otherwise I think he's he's gotta kinda work his way back into the Indians' good graces just with with what he's not been able to do over the course of the last year and a half. So I, it's, I know to, to me, and I think to a lot of people, it makes sense to put him in the bullpen um, whenever he comes back. But honestly, first, like it might, he might need a trip to AAA. Yeah, it would be an interesting case to see how they would go about making that transition because they've been so against it in the past, long term. They've done it in short bursts, and when he's come back from injury, they put him in the bullpen. But how do you go about making that transition permanent. Uh, they, could, they could get creative with him. It wouldn't have to be, and I've written about this before, and I know we've touched on it, it wouldn't have to be your average seventh, eighth inning reliever coming in, mm-hmm. pitching an inning, then having an off day, then coming back the next day, then maybe pitching a back-to-back. He's got the capability to log multiple innings. And I feel like with the way we've seen the game sort of evolved over the past few years. We're seeing teams willing to do this with a role in their bullpen. Uh, you know, Davinsky is kind of probably the one that comes to mind for most people. But find a way to get him 100, 110 innings out of the bullpen, uh, 120 innings out of the bullpen. That might seem like crazy talk now, but if you have him pitching three innings every two or three days, uh, probably more closer to three or four days, and just having him coming in in the game and blowing people away after you know whomever started the game. If, if you're talking about Tomlin winning that job, he's already a guy that you know you want to keep probably two times through the, the the batting order and then go to the bullpen after that. Maybe he lines up there. But I think there are, are more creative ways than just sticking him in a seventh, eighth inning role, letting him pitch an inning, and then that's it. And at, you look up at the end of the year. And he's logged 60 or 70 innings. I think you can get a lot more out of him. I think there's a lot of value there. And with the, the way that his injuries have been in his career, he's a guy, Zach, that is just so hard to count on. And it's, it stinks from the Indians' perspective that that's true because when we've seen him healthy, damn, he's a, a top 10 pitcher in the league when he's healthy. But how often can you count on that? And when you're talking about a starter that you hand the ball to every five days, and if it's to a, an extent where you have to wave goodbye to Ryan Merritt to, to, to have Salazar occupy a starting spot and then you lose some of that depth, 
I think it just makes so much more sense on, on so many levels to put him out in the bullpen, find creative ways to use him, and turn him into that nuclear weapon that the Indians were hoping that Mike Clevenger could be at the end of last year. It's, it makes too much sense, and that's how he would be used in October anyway. I think people were confused last year when the Indians put Clevenger and Salazar in the bullpen for the playoffs, and it's like the, the confusion was that they had, ne- they had no experience with it. Like, I know Salazar kind of worked his way back into that sort of role when he came back from the disabled list for the 30th time. Um, and Clevenger had pitched out of the bullpen before. But my point was, if you send him to AAA, let him try that. Let him go two innings, take two days off, go three innings. Like, let him get accustomed to that. Let his arm get accustomed to that. And then bring him up and, and let him be that, that weapon, like you said. So... I think it makes sense, but it, it, you know, he has to be on the same page. The team has to be on the same page and they have to devise a way for it to work so that it's not putting too much stress on his arm because it seems like everything else does. So it's, it's tantalizing, especially when you consider the state of the bullpen beyond this season and Salazar is three more years at team control left. So it, it, would be a, a nice solution and a safety net to have if you lose Andrew Miller and Cody Allen after this season. And, um, but who knows? I mean, he, that guy is such an enigma and you, you can't count on him. So it's, it's like whatever you do get from him is, is a bonus at this point. I mean, if he wasn't as dominant and as talented as he was, they does a guy like that get as many chances to prove why he should be a starter? Pro- probably not. It's because he is so damn good. Probably only in this organization, too. Right, you, because they can't go out and spend $20 million to replace him in the rotation. It's, it's why Carrasco got unlimited chances, seemingly. And they're willing to be patient with Kluber. And, and you could point to probably 100 other guys that they've done that with over the past few years. But it, it just it seems to... It seems to make so much sense that it would almost be foolish to to go elsewhere with it, to to jettison somebody else, to to lose some of your depth, or to to count on his arm being able to give you the 170, 180 innings that you want. And plus, we're seeing it, it. The line is erasing between starters and relievers, anyhow. So I'm I'm not as concerned with with labels and and who is the order in these innings and who is starting the game at the end of the year, find a way to get your best arms, the most amount of innings. And you can still do that with Danny Salazar pitching out of the bullpen. You can find a way to get him 100, 110 innings pitching out of the bullpen. It, it is very possible. And I know one of the downsides and people have brought this up before when I mentioned this at any point is, is there is some concern, you know, how would Salazar handle that from a, a psyche standpoint? Would he, would he like that? Would he dislike that? Would that cause him distress? How would he be able to handle that mentally? Now, I know in the past we've talked to him about pitching out of the bullpen, and he has said that he, he actually kind of likes the, the thought of the phone rings. You, you jump up, you get ready, you get that initial adrenaline rush, you come into the game, you throw your two innings, and then you're gone, and you're just letting it fly as hard as you can. Um, there's also an element of this every time that Danny tells us something, I'm not sure if he really means it or if he's just trying to tell us what we want to hear to get us to go away. Hmm. Uh, but I, I just feel like there is, there are so many creative ways you could use him, Even if he is not a starter, 
that I would be so interested to see. And I think he could just be so, I, I think he could adapt to that role. I think he could learn to love that role. And I think it would benefit the Indians in so many different ways. So you're that guy? You, you don't want to put a label on it? I don't want to put a label on it, man. Why can't we just be what we are? We're just having fun, right? We're just going out. We're having a good time. Why do we have to put a label on it? Uh, I, I actually think the Indians have probably considered this. They'll, they won't admit it. But the reason they've been pumping the, oh, we still see Salazar as a starter theme is they, they didn't want to deflect his trade value. Mm-hmm. So he, he's got more trade value if he's thought of as a, the all-star starter from a couple years ago, a guy who maybe someday can give you 180, 200 innings and they can get a, a handsome reward in return. Well, that's out the window because now we don't even know when or if he'll be healthy at some point this season. And um, So I, I, at some point, like they might have to bite the bullet and just make him that reliever and, and go with that weapon. And, and they might have been planning this for a while. So it'll be interesting to see. that. That's, that's going to be a storyline that, doesn't go away and, and even if he does I mean, if he does join the bullpen you still have to cut ties with somebody and I know things happen and you got a 10 day disabled list and that's a ways away but it is just interesting to see if they do their best to protect Ryan Merritt on this roster all season and beyond uh, they're going to have to get pretty creative because they're not going to have much flexibility and you could use the disabled list to your advantage you could mm-hmm. you could you could throw somebody's arm under under an MRI, oh, what's that? Oh, look at that, a little inflammation. We better throw it. It used to always table. be Jason Giambi. <laughs> yeah. So, but, it, you know, it can be spun in a way where it's, it's getting the most out of everybody. It's giving somebody a 10-day break, cycling guys on and off, keeping guys fresh. So you don't have another situation where you get to the postseason and it's happened to Kluber two years in a row. Uh, one, because he pitched so many innings in tw- the 2016 postseason. By the time he got to game seven, he was burned out. But he also pitched a crap ton of innings in 2017, too. And maybe that ended up leading to why he wasn't at his best against the Yankees. You know, we'll never know completely for sure. But if you have the depth, if you have the, the ability to be creative, why not use that to your advantage and Give Kluber a break. Give Carrasco a break. Give well, Bauer wouldn't want a break. He'd probably want to double down and pitch twice as much. But I mean, you get the point. You, there are ways that you could cycle guys using the disabled list since it is only now ten days, where you're skipping. And if you do it right, you probably could only skip one start and come back and still get your turn in the rotation. I know it would take some element of guys buying in, and that's always a question because guys are creatures of habit and they've gone about things the way that they have for the their entire baseball careers but we've also seen a willingness of of this organization and the guys within it to think outside the box and do things differently and come in and pitch the fourth inning if that's what the situation calls for i think if if they spun it the right way and and they were honest with the way that they were what they were trying to do with it i you know, I, I can't speak for guys but i just feel like there would be enough of people within that clubhouse wanting to win and trying to be at their best, that there would at least be some guys that are open to, to that sort of cycling on and off and keeping guys fresh. Can you imagine being the person who has to tell Trevor Bauer? He's going <laughs> on the list? No, no, I, I, I can't imagine being that guy. Um, and I know you spoke to Trevor recently. Um, and it was a great read over at the athletic. Um, he, he is somebody that has been interesting over the past few years to watch his transformation, not just in, in who he is and, and how he acts and 
kind of how he interacts with his teammates and how he pitches, but also seeing the fans and people that follow the game, how they've changed some of their thought on, on Trevor. And I know you've kind of even got, undergone a little bit of a, a transition of sorts uh, over the past couple of years covering him. I've done a 180 on him. Um, I, at, when he, uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you this story. In 2012, uh, that winter, my best friend moved to New York. And I was not, like, heartbroken or pissed off or anything. Like, I knew it was a possibility. I was, it was actually a month before or a couple weeks before I was supposed to move in with him. And so my group of friends decided it – was, it was also right around the time the Indians traded for Trevor Bauer, who is our age. So my, my group of friends and I decided we were going to get Trevor Bauer to replace – my friend who moved away and he was going to be part of our friends group. This is, I was like just getting my feet wet in, in the professional world. And like, I'm like, Oh, this guy, he's our age. He likes Chipotle. Like, perfect. Like we can, he can be friends with us. Didn't know anything about him. Um, other than he liked Chipotle because obviously now I don't know if he'd quite fit in. We don't really do uh, weighted ball drills or, or that kind of thing when we're hanging out. But, um, you know, as I covered him more and more, I kind of got, like, tired of his antics, honestly. Like, I, I always appreciated his candor, but it was a little ridiculous sometimes after games. And I think post-game interviews are so stupid 99% of the time. But everybody else at least just sits up there, spouts out cliches, and just does it and doesn't pout. And, and a lot of times early on in his career, even maybe up until a year or two ago, he would just sit up there and frown and pout and give kind of like sourpuss answers. And it was just like, I reached a point where I said, I'm not asking this guy anything unless there's something pressing ever. And I think I held firm with that. I, I did not ask him a, a question in a post-game press conference in a long time until last season. And then he actually... I started to turn the tide a little bit when I wrote a piece on Joe Smith's mom and how she was battling Huntington's disease. And, um, no, no, it was, it was the Brian Shaw piece. It was, it was the Brian Shaw's the pariah of Cleveland and Joe Smith was trying to read it and didn't have the athletic subscription yet. So he's asking me if there's a way he can get around the paywall and Trevor Bauer actually, told him to download the app because you get five free articles a month before you have to pay. I still don't even know if that's legitimate or not, but if Bauer says it, I guess I believe it. Um, and that led to a conversation with him about how he enjoys the athletic and how um, he laughs at people who reply to our tweets and say, oh, I'm never paying to read this or stuff like that. And, and you know, it was whether you agree with it or not, it was just like, it was a nice cordial conversation. So I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. I didn't think this guy cared or read anything or anything like that. And so then before the playoffs started, he opened up to me about all the stuff he was dealing with, how he was depressed earlier in the year and how, you know, it's just going on and on. And, and it was like really insightful. And I was appreciative of him taking the time and opening up like that. And it, it kind of clicked with me that he does not care to talk to people who won't accept his perspective on things. You don't have to agree with everything he says, 
and certainly there are a lot of things where you're like, oh, why are you tweeting this? Just shut your mouth. Why are you saying this? Like, but I think he... Are you telling him to shut up and pitch, Zach? Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I think he appreciates when people at least do their homework and have reasoned thought behind what they're asking. He doesn't... What's refreshing, and I think I was looking at it wrong the whole time, is what do we hate as, as reporters? We hate when people just say, how'd you feel out there? What was working? Or, or just stupid stuff like, what's gone right for you in your last three starts with arbitrary endpoints and knowing that every single start is completely different? Like, he hates the laziness. And so I learned to appreciate that because we, sh- we should hate the laziness too. So I've learned with him, and, and it's part of the reason why he's always liked talking to guys who write for fan graphs or people who are just well-versed in Statcast, Brooks Baseball, anything like that. And it finally dawned on me, like, if you can just connect with him and show that you are legitimately interested in what he has to offer, you can have a great conversation, like the one we had that, that created the, the article on The Athletic this week. And so it's I think it's taken some maturation from him. It's taken some growing in learning how to deal with him on our side. Um, but it, it's, it's actually gotten to the point where he's, he's fascinating to talk to and he's, he's willing to give you the time. If, if you put in the effort. Yeah. I think that's huge for him to see that even if you haven't, even if you don't know exactly what he's talking about, if you're showing initiative and caring and seeing if he'll explain it, you know, I talked to him beginning of last year. I was trying to understand, you know, what he was trying to get out of, of spin rates and I know he you know he's that's something he worked on a couple of years ago and I was trying to understand the difficulties of how do you increase spin rate can you increase spin rate and I'm sure this these questions to him are are like second grade level questions but <laughs> he took 20 minutes to try to explain it to me um in a concept that I could understand um, and I appreciated that and I always appreciate that no matter what time you walk away from, even in those meaningless post-game settings that, as you said, 99% of the time are pretty throwaway. Nothing really comes out of them. He'll fill your notebook. He'll give you something to write about, <laughs> even if it's his, in his non-answers or the mm-hmm. way that he only used 12 words to sum up his entire outing. You know, All those things give you something to write about. He's interesting. Um, and I, I have always been someone that has tried to, and I try to remind myself of this, as much as possible to, to remind myself that everybody's coming from a different situation, of course. Um, and just because someone appears like uh, they're, they're a jerk or they're, they're putting themselves on the outside, there's probably a reason for that. Uh, just because somebody's different doesn't make what their, what their thoughts are wrong or make them a jerk. It just might be they might have trouble expressing themselves. And I, and I think you're right that it also took him – kind of warming up to this situation too, because when he came in, uh, he was very combative right off the bat. And, and maybe it could have been easier if he was less that way. But then again, that's just who he was and that's how he processed things. Um, and I, I think he is someone that, that I will, I, I don't think there will ever be a time where I don't appreciate covering him. Even the times where he might say, well, this guy hit this ball over the fence and there was an expected bat- batting average on in that point of the zone mm-hmm. of 0.85. 
And you're kind of thinking like, okay, Trevor, that may be true, but still you have to take a little bit of responsibility for giving up the home run. You know, there are those times where you kind of roll your eyes and you have those, those sorts of situations, but I will never ever take a player like that for granted who is thoughtful and deep and is in a different way than Kipnis, but sort of the same way is going to give you something that, that you're not hearing from ever, anybody else. And I, and, I, and I think that's really refreshing. And I like that, that he's found some people in the clubhouse, um, you certainly included in that, where he can confide and, and give some of those answers. Because when, it, when it's just somebody parachuting in to find out what's happened in the last three starts, as you said, it's not going to be very insightful. But right. if, if you come in having done your homework or you have a, a legitimate concern or, or, or just you're trying to understand something from his perspective, I think he appreciates that. He sees that and he's very willing to bring you inside his, his little bubble, essentially, to, to give you that sort of understanding that you're seeking. I mean, if you think about it, if you ask the majority of players what they worked on in the offseason, they're going to give you some canned basic answer about oh I worked on everything or I wanted to get stronger or I like they're not going to give you anything good Bauer literally took us (laughs) day by day or week by week through the entire winter in in exactly what he did to develop these two new pitches the one that won out being the slider and like I, I actually felt like I learned a lot like you can't say that about many interviews you do in your lifetime and so, you know, I, I, of course, had to Google what the hell Magnus Force is, <laughs> and I had to refresh my memory on what laminar flow is and how the two oh, work together. Yeah. And he's talking about biomechanics and his efficiency rating and comparing himself to other pit. And, like, yeah, like, it was a lot, and it took a lot of uh, dictionary and Fangraphs dictionary work. Um, but I legitimately, like, a lot of times you're just nodding through an interview, politely smiling, pretending to write down notes just so it makes it look like you're really listening intently, even though you're just scribbling circles or, or stars or something. Don't give away all the secrets of the trade, man. <laughs> but with him, I mean, somebody's was... going to demand to see that notebook. <laughs> wow. You can't read my handwriting and you that's, know that. that's true. You need a microscope. So with him, I mean, it was. I legitimately walked away like, okay, I now understand the entire process, very detailed, specific of how this guy did it and how he is actually trying to get better. And I now feel like I can say, like, it's possible Bauer take, like I, I say with Clevenger, like, I'm interested to see if he takes the next step and, and puts together a really strong season. And I can give you some details on why he might just from talking to him about how he met with a trainer who is teaching him about posture and stuff like that. I don't have any idea if his pitching is going to be better. I can legitimately give you an educated guess on Bauer because I know everything he did to get ready for this season and to develop this pitch. And that if this pitch works and he's got another secondary pitch that can get guys to swing and miss, he's going to be lethal. So like it it makes us better at our job. If we do the homework ahead of time and we can develop those sorts of rapports with players so that they're comfortable enough, and interested enough to share with us this behind the scenes stuff. And that's cheap little plug here, but that that's, I mean, that that's what the athletic is all about. And that's what we're trying to do more of. And that's, that's what separates us from people who just show up to ask what was working out there. The Indians won five to two Bauer pitched seven innings. I felt good. He said like, come on, <laughs> we don't need that. Uh, I, I, I challenge you the last time to find uh, a, a canned response from Bauer that wasn't, 
completely sarcastic. And well, my, my final thought, so this isn't a complete Bauer podcast on him, is that I appreciate how much he wants to win, how much he wants to be the best, that drive that he has. And I wonder if he, I wonder if he realizes the extent of which he can sort of become, and this, this is really odd to think about, but he can sort of become a, a hero, if you will, a role model, if you will, for other guys that aren't as gifted physically. Like mm-hmm. Trevor, Trevor isn't the most <laughs> physically gifted pitcher on the planet. Hell no. He's, he's built like a nerd. <laughs> yeah, and, and he acts and talks like it too. But he's worked himself um, through hard work and through his beautiful mind, if you will, to, to build himself into being a little bit better than a league average starter with uh, some ceiling to perhaps even get better than that. Um, it doesn't mean that he's not an enigma at times, and it doesn't mean there are times where you wonder where in the hell the great performance went. He's clearly not a finished product. But how many people out there are, are watching him, seeing the things that he does? And I think he, you can look at Driveline and see, uh, and I'm sure the, the number of people that they have coming through there has increased, and Trevor's probably the biggest part of that as anybody. And how many people with, with giant brains and love baseball and want to be the best but aren't as physically gifted are looking at Trevor and saying, look, he's doing it. Why can't I do that too? And I wonder – this is something I actually want to ask him. Uh, I don't know if it will be in spring or at some point this season. If he, if he pictures himself as being that sort of role model for, for people kind of in a similar situation to him. That's a great point, a great thing to ask. And, and it's not even – it's on multiple fronts. You can be, he's, he's a role model or could be, or should be a role model to those who it it sets a good example because you can get an education and education can literally help you on the field. This is something we can dive into a a huge discussion on this at another day. And I've got a piece coming out in about a week and a half where we will dive into this more, but the Indians are, are placing a premium on education for their young players not just from Latin America and getting them to speak English, but everybody. They're helping. If, if you're a player who's also pursuing a degree online or whatever or, or during the offseason, the Indians are trying to help you get that degree. Like, like education is huge, and Bauer is a perfect example of how if you paid attention in science or physics class, that can help you on the mound. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And, and it also – and the number one thing is, is work ethic. He said in the interview we did, he said, I have to outwork everybody because I'm not physically gifted like them. I can't run like them. I can't lift weights like them. So I have to outwork them. Now, does that mean you need to go spend your week-long vacation in Iceland and and throw (laughs) four times and pack weighted balls in your luggage? No, you don't need to be that crazed or obsessed or devoted to it. But if you can put in the work, and it's not just with your arm, it's, it's studying video and film and being innovative to come up with ways to get better aside from just going to the weight room and lifting weights to get stronger so I can hit the ball farther. Like it's the ways he has had to get creative so that he can get better on the mound because he's not physically gifted just speaks to that work ethic. And it, it's, it sets such a good example for, for younger kids. And I know he stops into uh, his, the throw zone Academy in, in California where a lot of kids go to, to, to pitch and to learn how to throw and to be mechanically sound. And he, he pops in there whenever he can and, and speaks to kids and stuff like that. And it's like, it, it is, it's such a good message because 
education can help you on the mound or, or in the batter's box even. So can um, working hard and just making sure that you're always thinking of ways to get better. And it's he's he's called himself. I mean, he's been a work in progress since he was like four years old and was pitching. And his dad was thinking of ways to to use his engineering mindset to, to help him on the mound. And, and eventually Trevor did the same thing. And any good player would probably tell you that they will be a work in progress to the day they hang up their cleats. Um, and the best never settle, certainly. And he could fall back on what he did last year. He, he found a pitch that worked for him, that slider where he moved his thumb up on the ball and he was getting the action he was seeking. And he said, ah, that's good enough. And it got him through the end of last year. He's pitching pretty well. And he went in a completely different direction. So there's a, there's a case study in itself of a guy that clearly is never satisfied with where he's at. But I was thinking as you were talking, where would Trevor rank? Where would he have pitched in the, the 1999 Tribe rotation? Where do you think he would have <laughs> slotted in? Would it have been right behind Cologne? Would he have been behind He should Maggie? have pitched every day. <laughs> and that's the other thing. You know, part of the reason why that team – fell apart in the 99 postseason against the Red Sox is because Burba got hurt and they had no other pitching depth and they're relying on uh, Paul Shuey who was throwing up meatballs Sean to, DePaula. to Troy O'Leary in some other universe multiverse is still hitting home runs in game five of that series where would Bauer rank in that, that rotation? I would think second, right? First or second? Yeah, I, I would think probably behind Cologne Nagy yeah, had a bad year. Jared Wright had struggles. Nagy was terrible. Burbo was okay. Yeah, maybe somewhere along the way with Burbo. Well, maybe I'll do that next time to figure out how I would have fared if he were in that, that rotation for the entire year. But we'll wrap things up with something fun. One of my favorite things to do now for the past couple of years is to take uh, the current Indians group and have them score off against one of their former incarnations. Last year, I did the 2017 Indians versus the 1997 Indians. They were two teams, obviously, with World Series aspirations. And if you read that simulation, you would know that the 2017 Indians won in seven games. This year, Zach, and I asked you about this, too, as I was trying to figure out, okay, what would be fun? We could do 2018 versus 98 Indians to keep that 20-year gap intact. Uh, But 98 Indians don't really stand out to anybody, although they did go up 2-1 on that the juggernaut Yankees in the ALCS. But then I thought about, okay, the Indians have a great pitching staff. Historically, according to Fangraphs, last year had the most war of any pitching staff of all time. We know they lost Brian Shaw, but they're still really good. What would happen if they squared off against the 99 Indians who scored 1,000 runs, who were backed by Robbie Alomar and Kenny Lofton, Jim Tomey, Manny Ramirez, David Justice, Richie Sexton. Travis Fryman was hitting eighth on that freaking team. That was an incredible lineup. And so I simulated over at What If Sports and spit out the results in, on our website. So what were your what were your thoughts on on the way that that series played out? Is What If Sports paying us yet? I mean, jeez. Um, I was not too surprised, I guess, just because I think we overlooked the fact that the current Indians team, even without Carlos Santana, they sh- they should be able to produce quite a bit of offense. Um, I mean, we, we tend to gloss over the fact just because there was this mass exodus of mediocre free agents and a couple good ones this winter that like Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez are barely in their prime and Edwin Encarnacion still should be a major home run threat. And if you get Kipnis and Brantley, like there's still a lot of potential. So 
I didn't. I don't think I was too surprised. I thought it would go six or seven, and the, I think the the main thing that I came away with was were there no. I mean, we always see it in our HBD leagues where like <laughs> the manager pulls your best hitter for like some <laughs> random pinch hitter, and that that pinch hitter then stays in the game at shortstop even though he's a catcher. Like, were there any of those quirks? In That's, the uh, six-game series? That, you know me so well. Those are my favorite things. Those are the things that I'm looking for. Something where the – because to kind of explain how this works, in, where we play high, Hardball Dynasty, which is a variation of the what-if sports, it's under that umbrella. They have something else called Sim League, and then there's Sim Matchup, where you can take any two teams, you can build a team, and you can have them score off, and it'll spit out a box score for you. What it does is it takes – we're in our hardball dynasty league. It has little ratings for versus right-handed pitchers versus left-handed pitchers. What's his eye? What's his power? And it takes all of those and puts them into the algorithm and it spits out the result of every at bat and it feeds you the entire game in the sim league. There's no ratings. So it takes the stats from that previous year and those stats serve as the ratings, which end up getting fed into the game. So it then makes decisions based on, you know, I set up the lineup. I set up the, the, the starter in the game. But once I hit simulate, I'm not making the managerial moves. It, it's on the computer and what it thinks should happen. And so there was a couple that stand out, but the one which I made light of in the article over at The Athletic was at one point the, the 99 Indians, I believe this was game four of this series, were clinging to a one-run lead or two-run lead. Might have been a two-run lead. Um, and there were two runners on base they had just scored a couple of runs. I think it was Ramirez and Brantley had driven in some runs. So the digital version of Mike Hargrove, that only his coding can explain why he did this, with Edwin Encarnacion due up with two guys on base, went to Mark Langston. <laughs> <laughs> to Mark Langston to go get that big out against Edwin Encarnacion. And that's not to throw Langston under the bus. He had a fine major league career. But at this point, he's 38 years old. He just put up a 525 ERA in 25 games and he's coming in to face a right-handed hitter who feasts on left-handed soft tossing pitching and is just going to destroy it. Can you guess what happened? I'm sure you can. Three-run home run by Edwin Carnacion. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Mark Langston. I mean, you couldn't have gone to Paul Shuey or Eric Plunk or anybody else in that bullpen at that point. You couldn't have done that. You had to go to Mark Langston. Yikes. Does... <laughs> Does the digital version of I don't have like a response to that because I it just makes no sense. I'm just wondering, sitting here picturing the digital version of Mike Hargrove delaying a simulated game with <laughs> certain antics, human rain delay. Uh, it looks like it might snow here. I better go out here and chat with the umpire about this. Yeah, I was trying to remember if there was any the digital version of Terry Francona made a couple of questionable. Bullpen choices, not going to Cody Allen. I think later in that actual game, instead Dan Otero gave up the lead instead of bringing in Cody Allen. So it's, it's not quite perfect. I realize it's not quite scientific, but if you'd like to see what happened, you could go over to The Athletic today and either check my Twitter feed or go over to theathletic.com slash Indians and you can find it and see what, what actually happens in the what ended up becoming a six-game series between the 2018 Indians and 99 Indians. So does that mean the Indians will have no trouble with the Astros or the Yankees and their juggernaut lineups in October? The amazing thing about the Astros, because I was, I was thinking, okay, 99 Indians scored 1,000 runs, right? That's, that's something that I had, I 
can't remember what I wrote. Uh, it's like five or six or seven teams. Might have been seven. They were the teams. first team since 1950, Third. I think. Um, since 1930, there were seven teams, I believe, that had scored a thousand runs. But if you okay. actually look at like their weighted runs created, um, just because of '99 was right there at the peak of runs just exploding, they aren't actually as dominant as say the '95 Indians, who have the highest weighted runs created in Indians franchise history. But still, a thousand runs—that's impressive. So we hit simulate on that. But I'm looking at the Astros last year. The Astros were like seven percent better offensively in creating hmm. runs than the '97 Indi or the '99 Indians. I'm sorry, were the the Astros were like one of the best offensive teams of all time, at least according to weighted runs created plus last year. So, and that was before the World Series where they hit 632 home runs. Yeah, so it just gives you kind of a a little indication of what they might be up against with the Yankees and Astros, but. You know, anything can happen in a short series, as we witnessed last year. So why even play the regular season, right? None of that actually matters once you get to the playoffs. Yeah, I wish I could say that about my HPD leagues. <laughs> well, actually, I think you can say that about your HPD leagues. You have a one World Series title, though, so you should be happy about that. <laughs> I didn't even want that one. I don't <laughs> like that team. You're the most reluctant World Series winner of all time. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, which now we're in the featured in the Google Play Store officially. I sent that to you, and you were not impressed. But hey, you can find us on Google Play. So you know, the, I didn't not know what that meant. Not everybody has an iPhone, Zach. I'm just trying to help the people that might have an Android device or a Samsung, something else, so they can find us elsewhere. You can also find us on Bumpers too. Any parting words for our for our fans of the thousands of the of, of those that are out there listening? How many times do you think you will eat Panda Express during your time in Goodyear? How many meals are, am I actually going to eat? Because that would probably help. It would be better to just slap a percentage on it. I think uh, I feel good about 45% of my meals being Panda Express. <laughs> the tough part is it's the closest uh, restaurant. Is it a restaurant? It's the closest place. There's a, a McDonald's and a Panda right across down the street from the ballpark. So... You've got like an hour or so. You've got like a half hour to 45 minutes to kill before home games. And so it's, you can talk yourself into anything, but you have to pass those places before you go there. So that's, I'm just trying to explain my addiction. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of being an enabler at this point. But yeah. I, I think I have it even worse because not only, not only is it on the way to and from the ballpark, but where I've stayed the past couple of years, it's also right next to my hotel. So, right, <laughs> if, I'm, if I didn't get it for lunch, you better bet I'm coming home and getting it for dinner. It's not my fault. It's not my fault, Zach. None of this is my fault. They're placing it right next to, to me. How am I supposed to go outside, not smell it, not go inside and eat that? I mean, I'm not saying that I booked my hotel for <laughs> Anaheim because it was directly next to a panda, but I'm also not saying that I didn't. Oh, until this time next week, try not to kill yourself eating panda. We're out. See ya.